Last week, as you know, we began this two-part series on speech, on the teaching of Proverbs as it relates to our speech. Last week, we looked at the negative side. We looked at the instruction in the book of Proverbs about the kind of speech that we must put off. If we take the analogy of sanctification that we find in the New Testament from the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3, for example, we have this idea of as those who fear God, as those who follow Christ, as those who have been regenerated, have been saved, we now are about the process of sanctification. And that process of ongoing progressive sanctification entails two components, two aspects With sanctification, with growing in holiness, with growing in our fear of the Lord, it includes both a negative and a positive. It includes this aspect of putting things off. That which was part of our sinful flesh and our habits for so many years, we must put off. And we talked about that last week as we looked at the book of Proverbs and its teaching about the kind of speech that we must put off. And tonight we're going to look at the positive side In fact, many of you came to me afterwards and said, well, this tells me what I shouldn't say, but what do I say? And I had to say, well, just wait for tonight. Uh, We are not just to remain silent. Indeed, there are kinds of speech which must not come through our mouths. We need to learn to put that off, but that does not mean we remain silent. No, we must also speak, but we must speak the right things. And that's our focus tonight as we looked at at this positive side of growing in the fear of the Lord, this positive side of sanctification. It's the the learning how to use words correctly. And I want to say this at the very beginning. You know, as we talk about some of these things, there is this tendency, especially in our culture, but even among Christians to say, well, don't be so uptight. You know, they're just words, you know, a little exaggeration here and there and some little untruths, not a big deal. Don't get too uptight. But we must remember this. There is not a realm in human communication over which God does not exercise lordship. There's not a part of our speech which is not to be brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ. There's not a part of our speech that is not to be that that does not need to be impacted by the fear of the Lord. All of our words must fall under his lordship. Let me address something in the beginning here related to even social media. Because, now I'm not a big social media guy, but the little that I do see, you, you have this attitude among many Christians that something like Twitter or Facebook doesn't count that this doesn't, uh, that the truths of a book like Proverbs or the New Testament teaching on the tongue, that doesn't really relate to the internet, that that's kind of this area that's out there that is, is, it's just nebulous. Yes, we must apply these things to our everyday conversations, but in social media, it doesn't count. Well, I want to say this, that I hope that as we go through this these truths in the book of Proverbs as it relates to speech, that we don't take a minimalistic view. We don't take a minimalistic view of the lordship of Christ. 
a minimalistic view of the fear of God. That, that, that happens in other areas. And the Pharisees were guilty of this, for example. The Pharisees, for example, only believed that adultery related to an actual physical touch. And Jesus had to correct them and say, no, your view of adultery is too narrow. Adultery even includes the thoughts of the mind, those illicit thoughts. And I want to say this, as we deal with the tongue, we must remember not to have a minimalistic view that the teachings of the book of Proverbs and elsewhere in Scripture relate to everything in the realm of words. Everything. Words have power whether they are spoken directly face to face or whether they are spoken through Twitter. And Solomon certainly summarized this well when he said in Proverbs 18 verse 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. Now if you remember from last week, we talked about the death aspect of the tongue. We talked about the nine kinds of speech from the book of Proverbs that must be put off because they are death-inspiring, death-producing. We must put off speech which is false, speech which is misleading, speech which is harsh, speech which is degrading, speech which is flattering, speech which is argumentative, speech which is impulsive, speech which is boastful, and speech which is excessive. The book of Proverbs talks about all these different kinds of speech and the detriment they bring to others and how they dishonor the Lord because these are the kinds of speech that the Lord hates. These are the kinds of speech that lead to death. Well, this evening, we're now going to look at six kinds of speech that the book of Proverbs commands us to put on. Six kinds of speech that Proverbs commands us to put on. In the place of that death-producing speech, we must be sure to put on these alternatives, the, this kind of antithetical speech, this kind of speech which honors the Lord and is consistent with the fear of God. The first one is this. We must put on speech which is truthful. Directly in antithesis to speech which is false or misleading, the book of Proverbs, Solomon in particular, teaches that we must be diligent intentional to put on speech which is truthful. Solomon gives great honor in the book of Proverbs to the truth teller. You see, to speak the truth can even be defined really as the center or the epitome of wisdom itself. Truth and wisdom go hand in hand. So for example, he says this as he affirms truth-telling as he commands us to speak. He defines the right kind of speech in this way, 12 verse 17. He who speaks truth tells what is right. He tells what is right, but notice the antithesis. But a false witness tells what is deceit. Proverbs 12, verse 19, just two verses later, 
Solomon says this, truthful lips will be established forever, but a lying tongue is only for a moment. As part of that life-inspiring speech, he says that truth lives on and on and on, but over time, lies give way to death and decay, and they eventually disappear. No positive influence whatsoever. Proverbs 14 verse 5 says this, a trustworthy witness, someone who testifies to reality in a truth or trustworthy way is one who will not lie. It's given in absolute language. It's given in black and white, a trustworthy witness. The kind of person you want at your side, that person will not lie. Proverbs 14 verse 25 says much the same thing. And here again we have the idea of life-inspiring speech. A truthful witness saves lives. But he who utters lies is treacherous. Proverbs 16 verse 13. Righteous lips. Righteous lips. Lips that speak the right things are the delight of kings, and he who speaks right is loved. He who speaks right is loved. You see, if you speak what is true, you will always be loved by those who matter. He who speaks right is loved. Proverbs 24, verse 26, he kisses the lips who gives a right answer. You see, in the book of Proverbs, we see these two things go hand in hand, truth and wisdom. They are really twin sisters, and both are priceless. So Solomon says, for example, in in Proverbs 23, verse 23, buy truth and do not sell it. Get wisdom and instruction and understanding. He says, here is, is truth and here is wisdom. Both of them deserve your most your most determined, intentional pursuit. Back in Proverbs 3, verse 3, he says this, do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. That raises the question, what is truth? Remember Pilate's famous question as he questioned Jesus there? in uh, the, the trial after Jesus' arrest. Well, what is truth? What is truth? Well, we as Christians have an answer to that. The world does not. We can answer truth confidently this way. Truth is that which is consistent with the reality as God has determined it to be. Truth is that which is consistent with reality as God has determined it to be. Now, that's so important to catch that last phrase, as God has determined it. You see, when we define what truth is, we must recognize truth is not defined by personal feelings. Truth is not defined by circumstances. Truth is not defined by intuition, my own personal values or traditions. 
Yet we hear it all the time today that truth is somehow being true to one's self. Well, that certainly is not from the Scriptures. That is propaganda from the pit of hell. Truth is not being true to yourself. You are not the standard. You're not the compass. Truth is defined by God. It's revealed to us in His Word. His Word, His revelation, His Scriptures give us all the principles we need by which to establish a right understanding of reality. To be able to understand what is going on in this world, what truly is happening, and to understand what is truly needed in this world. The scriptures provide that for us. And so as we talk about truthful speech, we we are talking about the kind of communications which reflect Truth as God has determined it to be. Truth as God has revealed it to be in his word. And that obviously means first and foremost, if we are to have a right definition of truth, a right understanding of truth and reality, it means that God's word, his revelation, which is the standard, must be in us. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell richly within you. Then he moves on. To say the outflow of that word of Christ dwelling richly within us is all the speech that then can take place in a true way. I like what Pastor John has said on this issue. He said, truth cannot be adequately explained, recognized, understood, or defined without God as the source. Since he alone is eternal and self-existent. And he alone is the creator of all else. He is the fountain of all truth. If you don't believe that, try defining truth without reference to God and see how quickly all such definitions fail. The moment you begin to ponder the essence of truth, you are brought face to face with the requirement of a universal absolute, the eternal reality of God. Conversely, The whole concept of truth instantly becomes nonsense. And every imagination of the human heart therefore turns to sheer foolishness as soon as people attempt to remove the thought of God from their minds. In fact, really when you look at the book of Proverbs and its description of fools, the fools are all those who have sought to define reality according to their own hearts. The fool is the one who creates the standard of what is true and untrue according to what feels best to him. But we who fear the Lord, who have been regenerated by that fear, we are called to a much different standard. Now the standard isn't within us. The standard is the word of God And how he determines things to be. As a result, consider the words of R.C. Sproul who said this. If you are of the truth, if you have learned the truth, if you see the sanctity of truth, then speak truth. We are not called to be deceivers or liars. God is a God of truth. And his people are called to have an enormously high standard of truth. That means truth must permeate 
all of our conversations. And we must always be cognizant of this fact that as we make assertions, as we give answers, as we describe things, we as the people of God, as the men of God, are called to speak the truth. There is no room for debate. Whether it is a conversation with your wife in the privacy of that discussion, whether it is conversation with your children as you are explaining what's going on in your life, whether it is conversations with brothers here, whether it is conversations with your boss or your coworkers, conversations with police officers, you are called to speak the truth. And there's another area where you must speak the truth as well. Psalm 15 verse 2 brings it out when the psalmist David asked the question, O Yahweh, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell in your hill? And he gives the answer. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. Let me get into your face a little bit here on this. Sometimes this is where the problem is. We are speaking to ourselves all the time, and we are speaking lies. You know it. Just think of self-pity. Classic example. Every time of self-pity, we speak and believe lies. We speak lies to ourselves and believe them. And this need to speak the truth is not only in those audible words that we speak to others, not only in the prayers that we offer to the Lord, but also must be as we speak to ourselves. And our speech to ourselves must be permeated with the truth as God has revealed it in His Word. Truth about who we really are, truth about what we really deserve, and truth about how good God has really been to us. And that will solve In so many ways, the sin of self-pity. Let's look at number two. We must not only put on speech which is truthful. The book of Proverbs exhorts us to put on speech which is patient. Speech which is patient. God, uh, Solomon also emphasizes that God-fearing speech does not come to us quickly. God-fearing speech does not come to us quickly. In particular, God-fearing speech, wise speech, constructive speech, the kind of speech we must be engaged in, really must take into consideration these three things. And we see this in the book of Proverbs. Number one, constructive speech must wait for the whole story to avoid misjudgment. In other words... Wise speech doesn't interrupt. Wise speech recognizes the need to listen first. It's patient. Number two, the second component here, as we'll see it in the book of Proverbs, is that wise speech speaks not just at any time, but at the opportune time to maximize effectiveness. As we're going to see, it's not just about blurting out words of truth. It is about recognizing when those words are most effective and aiming for that. And then number three, as we think of patient speech, 
we also must recognize that this kind of speech must only speak what is necessary in order to avoid excess. We talked about that a little bit last week when we gathered, that one of the kinds of speech that we must put off is speech that is excessive, because with many words comes greater opportunity for iniquity. The more you speak, the more likely it is you are to fail. So patient speech is speech that will intentionally avoid excess. Where do we see this? Look, for example, at Proverbs 10, verse 19. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. You you actually show wisdom through restraint. You show wisdom through patient speech, not through just speaking whatever comes to mind. Proverbs 15 verse 28, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. But the mouth of the wicked pours forth evil, evil things. The mouth of the wicked is like this unending babbling, just never stops. But it's the mouth of the righteous that actually stops, p- prevents an answer until pondering takes place. Means that we need to get much more into the practice of saying, just wait a minute, I need to think. I don't know what to say. I know as a dad, that's so vital. And when I think of some of the more egregious errors that I have made, it is because I'm like the second half of this proverb, the words just pour out before I know the full story. Proverbs 17, verses 27 to 28, he who restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. A cool spirit. He's under control. He's patient. He's not hot-headed. Verse 28. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is considered prudent. Proverbs 18, verse 2. A fool does does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. Verse 13 of chapter 18. He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. Verse 17, the first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. And the idea there is, you know, the first side of the story that we hear, we always will jump to a conclusion. Typically, I should say, we'll jump to a conclusion. Okay, we got to do this. And how many times we act just hearing one side of the story Our speech is not patient. And then all of a sudden we hear the other side and realize just how wrong we got it. Proverbs 21 21, verse 23. He who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from trouble. And of course, this whole concept of patient speech. Speech that waits to hear. Speech that looks for the opportune time and speech which avoids excess is so well communicated in James 1 verse 9, that book in the New Testament that is so similar to the wisdom of Proverbs where James says this in James 1 verse 19. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow 
to anger. Number three, we must not only put on speech which is true, we must not only put on speech which is patient, but the fear of the Lord calls us to put on speech which is persuasive. You could even say eloquent. The fear of the Lord calls upon us to put on speech which is persuasive. Now, some downplay this and say, you know what? You know, in the New Testament, Paul says that we're not called to be orators. We're, we're not called to employ the, the kinds of, 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 of eloquence that was practiced by the philosophers of that day. Well, that's a misunderstanding of, of, of 1 and 2 Corinthians where Paul deals with that problem. You see, the problem of the philosophers was not that they worked hard to communicate clearly and eloquently. Their problem was they used these devices to trick their audiences into believing lies. That's the problem of the philosopher. Paul is not saying that our speech should be the opposite of eloquence or persuasiveness. And when we look at Proverbs, we see that the art of persuasion is a virtue that we are to pursue. And part of the problem as well is this, that sometimes we just think this, that, hey, if I said it, I'm an authority. doesn't matter how I said it. If I said it, it's enough for you to believe it. I don't need to persuade you. I don't need to, to express myself in proper grammar and eloquence and persuasiveness. I just said it, therefore you must Believe it. And we have this common tendency among men that we're rash, we're direct, we pride ourselves with that, and we say the art of persuasion is for those without authority. Those who have to persuade are those who don't have that inherent authority to get things done. Well, that's not how the book of Proverbs treats this. Instead, The book of Proverbs very clearly holds up the art of persuasion as an outgrowth of wisdom. Notice some of these Proverbs. Proverbs 10 verse 32. The lips of the righteous bring forth what is acceptable. You could translate that literally as what is favorable. But the mouth of the wicked, what is perverted Proverbs 15, verse 2, the tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, makes knowledge good, but the mouth of the fools spout spout folly. Proverbs 16, verse 21, the wise in heart will be called understanding, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. That word for persuasiveness is actually a word that can be translated as instruction. Sweetness of speech increases increases instruction. It increases the effectiveness of teaching. The same idea is found in Proverbs 16, verse 23, just two verses later. The heart of the wise instructs his mouth, and the heart of the wise adds persuasiveness or instruction to his lips. Proverbs 22, verse 11 He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious or agreeable, the king is his friend. 
Proverbs 25 verse 11, like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in the right circumstances. Now, when you look at that analogy, you realize this, that this word that is spoken already has inherent value. This word that is spoken is already assumed to be a true word. But what gives it its extra impact, what enhances that value is that it is a word that is spoken in the right way at the right time. This is what it means to be persuasive. Proverbs 25 verse 15 says this, By forbearance a ruler may be persuaded and a soft tongue breaks the bone. What the the sage is saying there is that that soft tongue that's persuasive can often and is often the most powerful tool to get things done. One person one time asked a very well-known theologian who's involved in the realm of apologetics, how or what principle was his, his modus operandi as he would deal with skeptics to the truth? Those who would disagree with him in, in, in face, right to his face about the truthfulness of the scriptures and so on. And, and the question was asked, how do you deal with them? What is, what is your approach? And he gave this Latin phrase, suaviter in modo, fortiter in re. Now for all of you Latin scholars out there, I'm not one of them. So I had to make sure I got the translation right. And if I got it wrong, you know, don't tell me later. Uh, but it's this, gentle in manner, powerful in substance. Gentle in manner, powerful in substance. This is persuasiveness. Let your words be truthful. Let them be powerful. Let them carry the weight. But the manner in which you give them must be gentle. It must have this sweetness to it. And think about how valuable that can be. Think about how much more effective that will be with your wife and your children, your co-workers. Now again, the, the automatic response of the flesh is this. Well, if I have this approach, people will walk all over me. But that doesn't matter. Because if you're walking according to the fear of the Lord, what or how they respond is not the issue. What is the issue is what you're called to do with your words. Number four, put on speech which is peaceable. Put on speech which is peaceable. Not only speech which is true, not only speech which is patient, not only speech which is persuasive, but also speech which is peaceable. Now, this is important because in the scriptures, we read that God is the God of peace. Romans 15, 33, Romans 16, 20, 2 Corinthians 13, 11, and so on and so forth. God is the God of peace. And when we sow peace, we are called the sons of God. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. And listen, you don't make peace apart from words. Peace is only made through words. Blessed are the peacemakers who have harnessed 
the right power of words to make peace, for they shall be called the sons of God. We read in Galatians 5 verse 22 that one of the vivid manifestations of that silent helper in us, the Holy Spirit, is this virtue called peace. He creates peace. And when we look at the book of Proverbs, we see that some of Solomon's most memorable descriptions about wise speech point to how the wise man's speech has a, has a calming effect. It, it brings tranquility. So, for example, in Proverbs 12, verse 18, there is one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. It brings healing, brings peace. Brings restoration. Proverbs 15 verse 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath. But a harsh or painful word stirs up anger. There the idea is gentle. The idea is tenderness. A soft word. A soft answer. And that soft or gentle. That delicate answer. Connotes as Waltke states. A response that in both substance and Style soothes and comforts the listener. Proverbs 15 verse 18 says, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger calms a dispute. Go back to 14 verse 29. He who is slow to anger, he's a peaceable man. This one who's slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. You see, the godly are those who can enter an argument, a quarrel, and de-escalate tension. You know, the the opposite is always there. You have these people that can go into any conversation, and, and they create tension. They just open their mouths, and all of a sudden, blood pressure rises in everyone. But there are fewer, the more blessed are those who can go into that conversation that is already tense. And they have thought through the power of words and are able to harness that power and to go into that conversation and to de-escalate, to bring tranquility, calmness, where sounder minds can prevail. Now listen, as a husband, you need to be very good at this. Be able to enter the conversation with your wife who, as the weaker vessel, may be struggling with something and you're the one to come in with the words of tranquility, not to escalate the problem. With your kids arguing among themselves or arguing with your wife, that you're the one to come in and to lower the tension and to bring the proper instruction correction that's needed, but through the right mechanism. As one who fears the Lord, you need to be able to be that instrument, that son of God who is a peacemaker, who can come between people who are, at, who, are, who are fighting with each other, at odds with each other, even among brothers. You don't need to just leave these to the pastors or to the counselors in the church. You need to be the kind of men that in your own spheres are known to enter the conversation and to be able to bring that that tranquility, that calmness. You need to be able to harness the power 
of words. I like what Ted Tripp says. He says this, in every situation I need to ask, and I would say this is for all of us, not just a few, what is the best way for my words to accomplish God's goal of grace? The answer will be different according to the situations and the people involved. But this is the question. Burn it into your minds. What is the best way for my words to accomplish God's goal of grace? Finally, number five. Actually, second to the last, excuse me. Second to the last. We'll go through this one rather quickly. Put on speech which is corrective. Now, as those who speak the truth, we cannot close our, our eyes or our mouths to the presence of error. We must speak what is corrective, though it must be done in the right way, using the right means at the right time, having listened to, to hear the whole story, we cannot, we cannot hold back from speaking correction, from speaking instruction, admonition, and even rebuke. Proverbs 24 verses 4 to 5 says this, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be like him. But answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he be not wise in his own eyes. Now some have said there's a contradiction here. Do not answer, but answer. What's going on here? And it can be described this way very simply. When, when the, the, the writer here says, do not answer the fool according to his folly, it means Do not embrace his worldview. Do not embrace his way of arguing. Do not embrace his presuppositions, his assumptions, his definition of reality. Don't do that because if you do, you become foolish. Don't take on his worldview. But at the same time, the writer goes on to say, but don't remain silent. Don't remain silent. You must answer the fool as his folly deserves, his error, his iniquity deserves a response. It deserves correction. Why? In order that he not be wise in his own eyes. Answer the fool in order to reveal the error of his logic, the error of his worldview, the error of his manner of speech. You must speak up. And men... Not enough of us are speaking up in the culture today. There is a whole lot of folly, and we need men who will speak the truth. Men who will not capitulate to what is being propagated in the world today. And this is only getting more serious with the passing of time. Whether it's the issue of homosexuality and transgenderism, whether it is the evils of envy and ethnic hatred, we must speak for the truth as the Bible has defined it. Notice what the writer says in Proverbs 25, 12, like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Proverbs 27, verses 5 to, six, 5 to 6. Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. 
Proverbs 28, 23. He who rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with the tongue. If you really speak the truth the right way, at the moment it may not be received well, but among those who truly fear the Lord, eventually, whether it be in this life or the life to come, there will be appreciation for your attempt. Never hold back when you see a brother in error. Never hold back when you see a brother who stumbles. Because not only are you called upon to reprove and admonish, but your silence may be the instrument that leads to the hardening of his heart as he goes through that sin, does not face any rebuke, and is only more prone to repeat it in a more aggravated sense a few steps down the path. You must speak up. And listen, this is especially the case for dads. If you want to ruin your son, let me tell you this. If you want to ruin your sons, never correct them. If you want to ruin your sons, never correct them. What do you think is going on with the riots? They're filled with young people who have never been corrected by their parents. Spoiled brats. And so what is needed to avoid our children going in the same path, our children who have foolishness bound up in their hearts, is to speak correction. So dads, you don't leave this to others. Dads, you don't leave this to your wives, although they must be involved. You don't leave this to the Sunday school teachers. Dads, you speak correction. As Proverbs 29.15 says, the rod and reproof give wisdom. The rod refers to corporal punishment. Reproof refers to verbal correction. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. In Proverbs 29, 17, correct your son and he will give you comfort. He will also delight your soul. Let me bring us to the final point here, and it's this, number six. Put on speech which is hopeful. Put on speech which is hopeful. This is so important. So important. Hope is such a necessary ingredient in any kind of discipleship or counseling or reproof. Proverbs 10 verse 11, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Proverbs 12, verse 25, anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. Proverbs 15, verse 4, a soothing tongue is a tree of life, but perversion in it crushes the spirit. Proverbs 16, verse 24, pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, Proverbs 18, verse 21. And those who love it will eat its fruit. Proverbs 27, verse 9. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, so a man's counsel is sweet to his friends. Listen, we do our greatest work as counselors, as disciplers, as men of the word, when our speech is filled with hope. A couple days ago, 
had an interaction with a young man who has had a very troubling set of circumstances. Today, he's isolated in a context surrounded by unbelievers. He is caught in a very difficult pattern of sin. And he came and he wanted prayer. And he came with tears in his eyes. And we prayed together. We shared the hope of the gospel together. And as we were departing, I went to shake his hand. And in that unexpected moment, he threw his arms around me and said with tears running down his face, thank you for hope. That's what we need to communicate. Words of hope. And let, let me tell you this, that, you know, why did you come here tonight? Let's admit it. We're always, we're always longing for hope. We, we live according to hope. And why is this place such a lighthouse when everything else says shut down? Because people want hope. And those who are saying, go and isolate somewhere, stay in your homes, put a piece of cloth over your face, hide yourself. They care nothing about the souls of people. And today, more than ever, there are so many people who are crying out for hope. And you don't get that by listening to a recording. You get that by seeing people's faces and that smile that brings hope. You get that by being together and hearing men talk about how the gospel changes people. It really does transform. We're not secret skeptics. We believe that it's the gospel that that transforms. And so people come and they want to hear that. Some medical professional who's just looking after a virus is not concerned about that. But we must be. We've been tasked as men of the word to be concerned about the souls of men. And that does require personal contact, and that does require personal words, and it does require that outstretched hand, and it requires that hug that says, there's hope. The gospel saves, and the gospel transforms. Come back to Romans 10. See how the hope that comes from the gospel comes through words. Not a picture, not an ambiguous sound. It comes from distinct words. Paul says in Romans 10, verses 14 and 17, How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You can do all the good deeds in the world, but if you don't speak words of hope in the gospel, that's not solving the problems of the soul. Man, we must speak words of hope. And those words of hope are words of gospel to the lost and the words that say to brothers who are struggling are going through horrible circumstances, listen, I'll walk with you 
And I know that we have a Savior who will get us through. Those who will point to a text like Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and how many times we've said it for ourselves, but it means something different when someone says those words to us with tears in their eyes, and they say, for all things worked together for good for those who are in Christ. And when we hear someone else saying that and we see it coming out of their mouth and we see it in their eyes, that changes. That's the power of words. And that's what we're called to do with these words. We're called to be instruments of hope. Put on speech which is truthful. Put on speech which is patient. Put on speech which is persuasive peaceable, corrective, and hopeful. At the end, we're going to sing a song. I'm going to pray. John's going to come forward here to lead us. But as we pray, we're going to sing a song that really encapsulates not only what we've talked about tonight, but what we've talked about so far in this whole series in our pursuit of wisdom. Take my life and let it be. And this is the hymn that we want to leave you with as we put a pause to our regular teaching season until January. As we sing this song, may it be your prayer, not only in terms of your own speech, but in terms of your entire life. Let's stand together and sing, take my life and let it be.